This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the wonderful world of Remnant Radio. My name is Joshua Lewis, and today we're talking about the Song of Solomon and sex. Uh, we're doing it with Dr. Trevor Longman, who's on the other line with us. But before we dive into that, uh, let's watch this uh, beautiful intro clip. You are watching The Remnant Radio, a crowd-funded show where we interview pastors, teachers, historians, and theologians from different churches and denominations. My name is Joshua Lewis, and this is my co-host, Michael Roundtree. Together, we want to help you break outside of your theological echo chambers. If you're interested in learning about history, theology, or the gifts of the Spirit, this is the show for you. Well, I've already started off the show saying Trevor Longman, when I should have said Tripper Longman. It's just a an innocent slip of the tongue, which... Uh, will be an interesting start of our show today. Uh, for those of you who are watching, you're new to Remnant Radio, you don't know who we are. We're a theology broadcast. We interview pastors and teachers from different churches and denominations. We've got exciting episodes coming down the pipe that you need to stay tuned for. Uh, man, we, we, we've we got stuff on theosis. We've got a Chris Roseborough interview or Chris Roseborough response. We've got uh, interviews coming down the pipe with the 10-minute Bible Hour guy. Uh, lots of great stuff coming down the pipe. But before we dive into some of that, I'm going to introduce you to Michael and ask him to tell us a little bit about the Houston trip just from last week. A lot of exciting stuff. That happened. Okay, yeah, Houston trip. You're so, like, Josh, this is out of the blue. We didn't, we didn't practice this beforehand. <laughs> it's all good. So, uh, yeah, so Josh and I went to Houston last week uh, along with, uh, we went with Michael Miller uh, yeah. from Reclamation tr- uh, Church, and he's on our Wednesday uh, podcast to be continued. So, uh, we went down there, and Michael and I uh, did some prophetic ministry. So, uh, those of you who are, many of our, our viewers are continuationists, Josh and I are continuationists. And so, uh, and so we practiced the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so, uh, we partnered with uh, Jack Deere there and he trained on the prophetic we did some q a and and demonstrated uh ministry for a, a church called woods edge church just uh in the woodlands outside of houston texas uh and uh, i think it was a, a powerful time yeah it was a lot of fun and for those of you who still think michael and michael are heretics after all the content that we've watched at least they're not false prophets because we recorded <laughs> all that stuff and uploaded it on patreon for those of you who are interested and really cool stuff on patreon we are doing a book club on the kingdom of the cults with dr walter martin um well we're not doing it with him. We're actually reading his book, Kingdom of the Cults. Um, pretty sure he's dead, so we can't do it with him. <laughs> Jeez, <laughs> so, that went dark fast, yeah, dark man. real quick. So, uh, yes, he is probably with us in a sort of great cloud of witnesses sense, but not in the like the literal sense. We're just reading his book and talking about it on book club. Uh, we had like 25, 30 ish people come on last time. It's really cool. Get it? No, people a good size for a book club. In. Yeah, uh, yeah. But but Dr. Longman, tell us a little about yourself and your ministry before we dive into our subject matter. Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm Trepper Longman. I'm a Old Testament scholar. I uh, have been studying the Old Testament for more than 40 years. I uh, got a PhD. Uh, well, I got my Master's of Divinity from Westminster Theological Seminary and then went to Yale University, got a PhD. And uh, so I taught at Westminster Seminary for 20 years, then Westmont College for 20 years. Now I am an independent scholar. Actually, I'm a distinguished scholar and professor emeritus at Westmont, and I do a lot of teaching and a lot of writing. So that's, and then I'm married to Alice, have three sons and six granddaughters, which is why I retired to move closer to the granddaughters. I heard that. Oh, awesome. Now, uh, tell us, you've got a couple of books. I've read your Song of Solomon commentary. I've read your book yeah. called God Loves Sex. I know you've got a number yeah. of other books. Tell us a little bit about just some of your writings. Okay. So, well, um, I published over 35 books. I've, uh, I've, written a number of commentaries on uh, different Old Testament books. I just finished and I was uh, working on editorial corrections, a new commentary on Revelation, which will be my next Ooh. book out. But and then, as you know, you mentioned the book God Loves Sex. And we were talking before the show about my collaboration with Dan Allender, the Christian psychologist. We've been best friends since eighth grade. We've written 
five or six books together on various topics uh, on the Old Testament and on on life. Uh, so uh, another example would be a cry of the souls where cry of the souls, where we talk about how the Psalms are a mirror of our soul and express every emotion that we feel and how we should process that in the light of the Psalms. Amen. That's awesome. Well, I first came across you on Mike Winger's podcast talking about the Passion Translation, and you were kind of digging in into some of the problems with the Passion Translation. So it was really cool. So you guys should check that out on Winger's, uh, uh, Winger's podcast. And we've also done an uh, episode with Mike Winger on, on this show uh, talking about the Passion Translation. But let's jump into the Song of Solomon. And uh, Dr. Lahman, if you could just kind of introduce us to the book a little bit, and specifically maybe the history of interpretation, because I know that uh, for many years, dating back into uh, Jewish interpretation, it was very allegorical, and uh, and so this this you know apparent love poetry was really just pointing to the relationship between God and His people, or between Christ and His church, and then uh, and then there was a, a gradual, very gradual shift in the interpretation and. Uh, and maybe you could just walk us through the the history of interpretation of this song. Yeah, I would love to. I, I find it fascinating that... Um, so the first thing you have to understand is that, of course, these books were written during the Old Testament time period, um, but we don't start getting uh, indications of how it was interpreted, at least the Song of Songs, till about 100 AD. So, uh, by, but by 100 AD, uh, we know that Jewish uh, rabbis are interpreting it allegorically as mm-hmm. uh, a poem that talks about the relationship between Israel, who is the woman, and God, who is the man. Uh, the, the earliest quote we have about the Song of Songs is from about 100 AD by a rabbi, Akiba, who said, whoever sings the Song of Songs as if it is a ditty in the wine hall shall have no share in the world to come. So basically it's saying anybody who reads it as if it is love poetry is going to hell, uh, which is kind of a strong statement. And it tells us <laughs> tells us two things. One is there were a lot of people who did read it in uh, a way that uh, treated it as if it is talking about human sexuality. Uh, but the religious authorities are trying to suppress that idea. And I'll come in just a moment to tell you why I think, and many people think that's the case. Um, but but early Christian interpreters uh, start, uh, when they start, and when we get interpretations from early Christian interpreters, they kind of pick up on that Jewish allegorical interpretation. But of course, they change it to Christian theology, and they say, that the woman is the church or the individual Christian and the uh, uh, man is is God. So, um, so it's not talking about human relationships. It's talking about divine human relationships. And the early interpreters also famously um, would interpret the details of the song in a very literal way. There's Song of Songs 113 says, my lover is to me like a sack of myrrh lodged between my breasts. And Hippolytus around 200 AD said that's a reference to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the sack of myrrh. And that uh, the breasts represent the Old and New Testaments. So you could find Jesus in the he's, old and new testament he's right so, there in the bible yeah so it's <laughs> i'm all in favor of christological interpretation of the old testament by the way but i don't think that verse is talking about it <laughs> so so just real quickly um the reason why i uh suspect that that was the case was because during the Middle Ages, um, the church was influenced by Platonic philosophy, which put a big gap between the body and the soul. And not only felt that the soul was different from the body, but that the body kind of drags the soul down. Mm-hmm. So anything that uh, 
anything that the body enjoyed is probably bad for you spiritually. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and of course, during the middle ages, we have the, the rise of celibate priesthood, the monastic movement and so forth, all of which, uh, I think is, is because not because the Bible teaches it, but because reading the Bible in the light of platonic philosophy would lead to that conclusion. So what happens in the 19th century, which is where you get that transition you're talking about, where the allegorical interpretation starts diminishing, particularly among scholars, is when there, there are basically four factors, and I'll say them real quickly. <laughs> uh, one of them is that Platonic philosophy began sort of uh, not being as popular um, among the church uh, among church leaders. Uh, secondly, um, you have the rise of the Enlightenment or modernist biblical interpretation. There's a lot to criticize about modernist biblical interpretation, but you actually have to provide reasons for your interpretation and not simply accept it from your teacher. Mm-hmm. So you might imagine the first sort of modernist student of a, of a, you know, pre-modern teacher uh, questioning the asking for reasons like why should I take the breasts as a reference to the Old New Testament, um, and then thirdly, there's a discovery of ancient Near Eastern literature that starts happening around 1800, and there's love poetry from Egypt and Mesopotamia that's similar in theme and metaphors and so forth to the Song of Songs, uh, which is, and they're they're clearly not religious literature in the primary uh, meaning of it. And then fourthly, <laughs> uh, Europeans are coming into contact with the Middle East for the first time in a long time. And, um, and they're listening to, say, Arab wedding songs, and they sound very similar to the Song of Songs, and they're kind of preludes to lovemaking. So all those things kind of led uh, to this transition. Now, maybe at another point in the show, we could talk about the fact that the Song of Songs still has implications for our relationship with God. Mm -hmm. Uh, The most important transition, though, um, has to do with the fact that we can no, I don't think we can any longer ignore uh, that the Song of Songs is also speaking to God's good gift of sexuality to his human creatures. That's great. Um, you know, you, you, you mentioned a lot about the patristics, how the patristic era, how they viewed the Song of Solomon early on. Can you, can you give us the basis of the Jewish understanding of the Song of Solomon? Uh, oh. and, and who wrote it? Like, what's the, the context and the, the historical grat- grammatical context that it emerges in? I, I think in the, your book, you mentioned that Song of Solomon, you, you actually hold that song, that, that Solomon himself actually wrote this. Is that right? Um, uh, actually, uh, I, I well, must have re- misread yeah. that note. Uh, uh, Michael wrote a note down, and I think I might have misread it. You're in Michael's. No, no, not a thing. It's all right. That's all right. So, uh, so first of all, you know, when when uh, Jewish interpreters around the time, you know, at the time of Rabbi Akiba and after are themselves being influenced by Platonic philosophy. And, and, and in many ways, they don't have like a direct conduit back to the original meaning. Now, um, the, um, uh, I, I don't insist, maybe I'll put it this way. I don't, I don't think we, can insist that it was written by Solomon. Uh, it begins Song of Songs, Le Shlomo in the Hebrew, which can be understood in a number of different ways. Um, you know, writ- it could be understood as written by Solomon. It could be understood as uh, in the Solomonic tradition. It could be understood as concerning Solomon. Um, I think, though, that there are reasons to think it wasn't written by Solomon. Solomon's talked about, you know, in the third person in the book in two or three places. And he's, he's kind of a negative presence for the most part in the book. Um, But, but I don't like getting hung up on that question as much as just 
saying whenever we read an Old Testament book, our first reading should be in the context of the time and culture that it was written because um, because the Old Testament human authors are writing for their contemporaries. My friend John Walton put it this way. He said, uh, uh, the Bible was not written to us. It was written for us, and that's the important point and why we recognize it as authoritative and canonical. But every book of the Old Testament was written to a, a specific contemporary audience. And I like to tell people, give people a New Testament example when by saying they don't call the book of Romans, Romans for nothing. You know, that was a book that was written to the church at Rome. It wasn't mm-hmm. written for us. And, and, and you're not denying... Yeah, and you're not denying inerrancy and saying that like the book of Second Samuel wasn't written by Samuel; he was dead. Right. Right. Like. Uh, yeah, yeah, right, right. 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 For right. example, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah, you're, you're yeah. just making the case that um, that oftentimes, even in ancient Near Eastern cultures, that uh, the book would carry the title of a person or a, a title like the Book of Romans because it it gives you some context. Right. That's exactly right, Joshua. Yeah. So, and I'm, yeah, and I'm not denying. Inerrancy. I think the Bible is true in everything it intends to teach, um, and so. Um, uh, but I also recognize that there are a lot of biblical books, including Samuel, that are really anonymous books. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's it, there was a early tradition that it was authored by Samuel, but there's no claim in the book of Samuel that it was written by Samuel. And um, and indeed, if you look closely at it, it's it's it ends up being a single literary piece with kings, and it seems like the that book grew over time, and the final author was writing during the exile. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't mean that Samuel may have had some contribution to the book for sure, sure but but we're not we're not basing our belief in its authority on the fact that it was authored by Samuel. Um, We believe that ultimately the Holy Spirit is speaking to us through this book, and that's where the authority is. Okay, so so we've established that probably not allegorical, uh, more of uh, uh, just... uh, taking a grammatical historical approach and understanding these images is this, hey, this is really a book about love and romance and sex. And so uh, what would you say, given that framework, are the primary themes, the central message or messages that the Song of Solomon is trying to communicate? Yeah, that's a great question. And maybe just one more real quick comment about the previous issue of allegory and sure. and that is there are of course allegories uh there are even allegories contained within some biblical books i think it's galatians where paul uses the hagar sarah story in a kind of allegorical way uh but allegories are not subtle literature they're really really obvious to identify and a lot of uh our listeners uh probably know the pilgrim's progress which is the most famous allegory ever written and that's that's a real allegory you have a guy named christian traveling to the celestial city and running into things like the slav despond there's nothing subtle about an allegory Mm -hmm. and there's no such signal within the book of song songs that would tell us that it's allegorical Right. But in terms, so I I think what the Song of Songs is is love poetry, and I think it's a collection of love poems, um, and they have two big themes, and the biggest theme is essentially a celebration of God's good gift of intimacy, physical intimacy between a man and a woman. It's reminding us. Uh, that God created us sexual creatures. And you go back to Genesis 2 to read about that. Um, And then you also read Genesis 3 and you see that because of sin, there's all kinds of disruption 
um, that is caused in, in all facets of our life, but also, of course, sexuality. And uh, but the Song of Songs is kind of a, uh, in that sense, a uh, a poem that is communicating that there is a redemption of sexuality, but it's an already not yet redemption because because um, sin still persists in our life. Mm. And that's why there are some poems in the song and uh, there's some poems in the Song of Songs that have a uh, more sort of negative <laughs> uh, in the sense of talking about problems that persist. The foxes in the field in Song of Songs, too. Mm-hmm. Um, the man and the woman having difficulty connecting with each other in Song of Songs 5. So there's a kind of sub-theme of, um, of a recognition of the difficulty of, of godly sexual union. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then, and then that's why I think, and we may want to talk about this more later, but that's why, uh, you get these three times the, the woman, uh, turns to, uh, the women of Jerusalem are kind of like her disciples and says, uh, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires, which I mm-hmm. think is saying, don't jump into this wonderful relationship until the time uh, is right. Mm-hmm. So you've already touched on just a little bit of like, I guess that would be one of the sexual ethics that we can pull from the Song of Solomon. Should the Song of Solomon be used to pull sexual sexual ethics out of? Like, what do we learn about sex in this book? Yeah, um, and probably more than um, than I'll say right off. So if you want to prod me on some things. Uh, and, and again, I think ultimately, as we as we talk about sexual ethics from the Song of Songs, which I do think we can do um, in terms of God's vision for our sexual lives, we also we also always need to uh, interpret any one book in the light of the broader canon. Um, so Song of Songs isn't going to present a sort of full orb sexual ethic, but I think I think it is reminding us that again that God uh, made us sexual creatures that um, that that sexuality is not inherently bad or evil. Um, it's also, I believe, um, talking about, uh, the mutuality of desire and intimacy. Um, man, it's, it's kind of interesting in the Song of Songs, how the woman plays such a leading role in, in, in initiating and, uh, a relationship, for instance. So there's a kind of mutuality and an equality, I would argue, in the Song of Songs that reflects the Garden of Eden. Mm-hmm. And and then there's also an exclusivity. Um, you know, marriage, uh, and, and there's not a lot of explicit marriage language in the songs. Though, song, though, in Song of Songs 4, it talks about, you know, my sister, my bride. Uh, there is a mention of marriage uh, or marriage language, but interpreting the song within the context of the whole canon, um, you know, you can't turn it into a kind of pamphlet on free love, which one French scholar, Andre Lecoq, tries to do. Um, <laughs> Yeah, you've got to, You've got to interpret it within the context of um, of the of the whole canon. So, um, so marriage is a, a unique human relationship in that you can have one and only one spouse, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to friendships, children, parents, business associates. Uh, all other relationships are not that kind of mutually exclusive category, um, and 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 which, by the way, is why 
uh, marriage is such a fruitful metaphor for the divine human relationship as well. And, um, and, and it also, you know, Song of Songs uh, also is talking about passion, you know, the kind of passion that we should engender or strive for within our marriage relationships. So, um, so yeah, I think, um, I think there's that and even more that we can derive from the Song of Songs. Now, you know, the Song of Songs is a poem, um, and it's, 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 and as a poem, it, um, it uh, teaches in a different way than, say, the Ten Commandments or the laws that flow from it. So we always have to keep that in mind, too. Unless, of course, the Ten Commandments are the breast, in which case, symbolically, it's exactly the same. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so you touched a, a moment ago, you touched on uh, one of the principles that married people should strive for based on the song is nurturing uh, the the passion, the sort of emotional intimacy that complements sexual intimacy. What are yeah. some of the major principles within the book, within the the Song of Songs, what are some of the principles that married people should apply to their marriage? Like one, two, three, like if you do these things, like, you know, you talked about how it, it teaches us in a different way than maybe the Ten Commandments or, you know, uh, other books of the Bible. And I and I find it fascinating. There, there's one verse, the I guess it's chapter eight, verse six, that debatably, you, I know you say it doesn't mention the Lord's name. The English Standard Version says it does mention the Lord's name. But either way, there, there's a debated one verse. It doesn't. It either doesn't mention God's name except once, or maybe not at all. And in the opportunity that it does offer to like really mention the Lord's name, wherever she's she's you know saying, "Vow to me by the does and the gazelles of the field that you will not stir up nor awaken love until it arises." It would have been so natural for her to like bind people by oath in the Lord's name, but his name isn't mentioned. And so I, I wonder if you could uh, speak into these principles that emerge, albeit in a different way, albeit not like, hey, married people, mm -hmm. do this. Here's my exhortation. Yeah. But what do you see as a scholar as these principles that just emerge mm. in a healthy marriage and a healthy sex life? Yeah, Um that's a great question, and uh, and these won't sound like principles so much, but uh, uh, but but I think one of the things that the Song of Songs does is that it invites and encourages us, uh, and as Christians, but let's focus in on a married couple, invites and encourages us to to talk about sexual things honestly and openly uh, to um, encourage each other toward sexual play and exploration uh, within the limits of common consent. Uh, and, and the reason why I say that is because um, while well, society has made the uh, sexuality and idol. And, and that's another thing I think mm -hmm. the Song of Songs and the Bible speaks against. Uh, the church has and continues to make it kind of a taboo, you know, mm -hmm. um, that, um, that, and, and then, and then of course, um, one of the negative things about say something like the purity culture and, and, and you don't have to be, part of that to know that you know often christian parents raise their children particularly their daughters to be uh perhaps uh a little bit frightened about sexuality mm -hmm. um is that that people go into marriages then and and you know you don't automatically move from i i need to be pure and chaste to to complete openness with one's uh spouse so mm -hmm. um so again don't hear me saying uh, that parents shouldn't encourage their children toward uh you know um uh 
you know, toward, sexual purity. toward obeying, yeah, sexual purity. But uh, how we do that, I think, is is very important. Um, you know, I think the song of songs is a little bit like the um, uh, Psalms. So in the Psalms, you have um, poems on all kinds of, you know, expressing all kinds of emotions. I earlier talked about it as a mirror of the soul. That's Calvin's phrase that Calvin said, there's not an emotion felt by a human being uh, that isn't expressed in the Psalms. And so one of the purposes of the Psalms is to help us express what's going on inside of us. You know, if it's, mm-hmm. if it's love, joy, or if it's anger, hate, it's, it's directing our emotions toward God. Mm-hmm. So, so the Song of Songs, I think, which has an unnamed man and an unnamed woman um, speaking, invites a married couple to perhaps uh, to uh, use that to encourage them toward honest sexual talk about desires and limits and whatever. Um but but I do think the Song of Songs is there to encourage uh, godly couples to enjoy God's good gift of sexuality. You you made the statement earlier on uh, in the show that uh, there there are some well for my ask this question you talked about um, one of the purposes of the Song of Solomon was to say that sex isn't bad and that it is good that it's actually a blessing um, was that was that just a, a statement to be true as, hey, God created the heavens and the earth and I'm just repeating something that is true? Or was there a, a perspective in the days that this was written in its ancient Near Eastern culture that, that demonized or a, a aggressively combated the idea that sex was good? Uh, I could certainly see that in the kind of proto-Gnostic platonic world mm. of the first century that mm-hmm. there would be that view. I mean, we see Augustine. Mm. There are myths yeah. of Augustine, um, yeah. you know, and, and, and his sexual ethic is that of abstinence. Um, mm. So, so can, you, can you tell speak to us again on the, the uh, authorial intent of those who put this together mm. and, and what their yeah. view of sexuality would have been around that time period? You know, Joshua, that's a, a great question that we can't answer quite as confidently as you can for New Testament. Sure. Uh, partly because... You know, we don't, to be honest, we don't have hardly anything um, from Israelite culture itself um, except what we have in the Bible until, you know, the intertestamental time period. Um, so we have to do some um, speculation on that subject. I I think that uh, it must though um well first of all i I would start by saying we talked about sex and sex disrupts relationships it disrupts sexual relationships uh that's why the law is there you you know you must not commit adultery um and so israelite men and women are fear fear are feeling the uh scar of sin um in their relationships uh and so so the 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 kind of natural reaction to that is sex must be bad (laughs) so i think what i think what the song of songs is doing is saying remember remember that sex is not itself inherently evil um Mm -hmm. And and therefore, you know, strive to faithfully and obediently enjoy God's good gift to you. Yeah. But you're right; it's it's it kind of fits in with the uh, with the whole theology of creation, right? Um, so, and and it actually uh, fits in with how the Song of Songs was interpreted. So, take a early church theologian like Jerome, uh, who lived around 400 AD, who was influenced by this kind of platonic philosophy. Uh, and so he very much 
asserted an allegorical interpretation and suppressed a uh, literal interpretation. Um, so, um, yeah, I forgot where I was going with well, that. I mean, but, it, uh, it makes sense. <laughs> if I remember right, Jerome, I mean, I think you mentioned this in one of your books. Didn't he like in an effort to stay pure, jump into a thorny bush or something crazy oh, like yeah, that. Yeah, right. Well, I like to tell that story to Hebrew students because uh, <laughs> it, it, Jerome says that, you know, whenever he felt sexual arousal, he would jump into a thorn bush and roll around. But after a while, That'll that didn't it. work so much. Well, he said after a while, <laughs> then he, it didn't work Then he work became so a masochist after so well. a while, huh? It didn't, like, yeah, how did would. that stop working? At what point were I, you like, you jump into a thorny I, bush and you're like, I, it, I'm still ready to go. Yeah, in his late 20s, <laughs> yeah. Michael, when you're like, oh, when did yeah. that stop working? His late 20s, that's when it stopped exactly. working. Exactly, um, exactly. So, yeah. Well, but, you know, but I have to, I have to complete the thought. Because he okay. then devised another strategy, which was to take up the study of Hebrew, and he said, <laughs> "Yeah, that'll that, do it." That helped him. That no helped doubt him, right? did the trick. No doubt that did it. <laughs> um, but but what you're talking about is you're talking about interpretation in light of culture, right? Which makes yeah, perfect right. sense. I mean, we see that uh, during the abolition, right? We, we see like the entire Western world have a new view of wine when the historic position oh. of wine has been pretty consistent, but the a right. context of an immediate event can change the interpretive lens in which people are looking at Scripture. And we all come from this cultural lens by which we see things, and oftentimes yeah. we're not even aware that that lens exists. Um, so you're really exactly. talking about the interpretation of that through a cultural lens opposed to yeah. knowing actually what it was written yeah. for. Well, which, which, by the way, you know, we're not doomed to do that. Um, right. Or at least, so we can, I, I always advocate reading in community. So you read with other people who may have different lenses from other cultures or from, you know, uh, different gender, different uh, ethnicity or whatever. I, I just had an interesting conversation. I think he might have written about this with my longtime friend, Tim Keller, who many people know, who's a pastor in New York City. And uh, Tim has pancreatic cancer. Uh, thank God that right now the the, the treatments are very uh, effective. So, um, but Tim said, uh, you know, I'm reading now that I'm reading the Bible as a cancer patient. I'm seeing things I glossed over beforehand. That's things good. have come into light to me that uh, that I that have enriched my understanding of scripture. So that just shows, yeah, we do read with lenses and, and that's why we need to be in touch with other people. Well, Pastor Tim is a, is a hero. We love him. We're super thankful for his ministry. Yeah. But I feel this necessity to like lighten the mood in asking if Jerome, <laughs> what Jerome was practicing was called thornication. <laughs> sorry, I thought of it. Oh, I thought of it, and I couldn't let it go. I'm oh, so dude, sorry. You, you had to say it. Yeah, I'm, I'm stealing. I'm stealing that one. Yeah, <laughs> it's. Yeah, hey, hey, I. Dude, uh, you, you should any, be proud of that one. Anytime, I am proud of that one. Dardation, I'm a dad. Of course, yeah. I'm, a, I'm. Of course, I'm proud of that one. <laughs> okay, yeah. so, but uh, speaking of culture, and you talked about this a, a few moments ago with purity culture. So in uh, 2018, there was some mommy blog. It was like some mom in Houston released this blog attacking purity culture. And, uh, and I, and I read it. I actually thought her critiques were valid. Um, but then the blog kind of ends with, so I don't know what I'm going to teach my children about sex. It almost like borderline implied, uh, you know, a little experimentation. I mean, she didn't quite say it, but she, I, I thought it was a subtext, um, uh, of essentially like maybe we shouldn't even teach our kids sexual purity. Again, she didn't. She's just stopped just short of saying it. And so there's this fine line because you talked about, hey, you interpret within the full canon, and like I mean, the canon is, is quite clear. Um, there are there is such thing as sexual sin, and it is reserved for marriage. Uh, and then on the other hand, you have people who. Um, you know, the way she defined purity culture as she talked about, and you, and you touched on this one, valuing female purity over male purity, which the Bible never does that. Um, or, or, you know, maybe the Pharisees in John 8, but, uh, but really the Bible doesn't do that. And, uh, and, and so God values male and female purity the same. Uh, blaming women for dressing provocatively, um, 
and you know, not that you know the Bible does say dress moderately, but moderately, modestly. Mod- what I say? Mo- you want to? You said moderately, and actually, the Bible says the exact opposite. <laughs> the Bible says wear lots of clothes, please, because that's what modesty. Dude, you're on like. top of it today, bro. I'm sorry, you are on top of it. Just keep so the spirit of sarcasm. I apologize. It really comes out in an episode about sex. It, you know, it's just it really flows. I mean, my legs twist. So, sorry, I can't, can't help it. Uh, yeah. Shaming people for for sexual screw ups. I don't know if you guys ever saw. I mean, everybody saw like the the video of Matt Chandler, like where you know a pastor like passes around Did a rose he preach that uh no no well he was criticizing it oh okay he was criticizing was say- it but it was basically coming out of this so-called purity culture where uh the idea was you know a pastor he's talking about sex he passes a rose around at the very beginning that's right and uh and you know like it, it's going through like every hand everybody's touched the rose by the time it gets back he picks it up on the stage and uh, shows everybody's like look at this rose isn't this oh, terrible man. and like every petals like falling off and mangled and he's like this is what you know a woman lo- is like who's you know allowed herself to be touched by all these you know men etc and uh and, and so chandler's in this and he's watching it and and he stands up. He just says, I just wanted to stand up and scream. You know, when, whenever the pastor says, who's going to want a rose like this? Chandler says, I just oh, wanted yeah. to scream. Jesus wants the rose. Yeah. Jesus does. Which I'm like, I wish you said it, Matt. But <laughs> yeah. anyway, so like purity culture, like there, like there were some real abuses. There really were. Yeah. And so I actually appreciated this woman's insight. But then the solution's not like. Therefore, who cares about purity? I was about to say screw purity. That would have been the wrong thing. You would have been been all over that. But like, there's got to be like, how does the Song of Solomon speak into this as advocating exclusivity within marriage? And yet at the same time, not not going to these like uh, abuses uh, that we've seen in purity culture. Yeah. Well, I think maybe uh, one of the problems is what do we mean by purity? I mean, the. I, if purity means not having having sexual intercourse outside of marriage, I I think that is what we should uh, strive for. While also with Matt Chandler saying uh, that 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 doesn't turn somebody into an undesirable rose that no one wants. I mean that is cruel. But um, but on the other hand, if purity means no sexual contact of any type before marriage, and uh, I remember reading a, a generally good book by Kevin DeYoung, the chapter on sexuality, though, uh, kind of infuriated me because he said, my wife and I didn't do this, but I'm telling all of you that you should treat your future wife like your sister until the day you're married in terms of, you know, physical intimacy. And, and I, I just don't think that honors God's good gift of sexuality, nor really understands us as human beings. The way I would put it is, and this is, you know, doesn't boil down to, uh, to rules, but, um, but that the more, commitment there is uh, over time, the more physical intimacy there can be, especially, you know, depending also on a whole bunch of factors like age and maturity and, and so forth. Um, So um, it's a matter of wisdom. It's not a matter of law in a certain point by wisdom. I mean, there are principles, but the principles are applied according to the specific situation and the people involved. I mean, uh, there are like somebody can't take a drink of wine without getting drunk. Uh, there, there are people who can't kiss a woman without keep going and you need to be aware of that. But, um, but I think the reason why maybe emphasize another, um, aspect of this from the other side the reason why sexual intercourse is reserved for marriage is because uh that type of that level of intimacy where you're giving yourself to another person not only physically but emotionally and spiritually uh, needs the protection of a legal commitment (laughs) and um and 
and uh, and so so those are just some some thoughts, and not all of those derive from the Song of Songs, um, but um, and there is a question as to you know I think the Song of Songs collection of twenty some individual poems which have a kind of unity to them but not a narrative unity uh, some of the poems seem to be of uh, of lovers who are not yet married um so okay so that's uh, those are a few thoughts so so i'm i'm gonna put take off take off remnant radio show coast hat and i'm gonna put on former youth pastor hat and just talk about wisdom and like age <laughs> and these kinds yeah. of you know principles that you just put out there um yeah any teenager 20 something 30 something right I- any of them uh, <laughs> that want to talk to me about like you know i don't really have a rule I just have wisdom and I'm just, I've got these biblical principles. Um, you know, they pull up through a drive through movie theater and things get heavy and all those principles go flying out the window. Um, yeah, again, yeah, just, yeah. just calling balls and strikes here. When we talk about this, you know, what, what, how would you advise, you know, or, or speak to someone who has that kind of, kind of reaction to, well, I work with young people and young people don't typically just live off of wisdom principles. I mean, they can't, yeah. they're 30 and still living yeah. in their mom's basement. There's no wisdom there, right? Like <laughs> let's, let's, let's figure out the, 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 the kind of connective tissue here. So we shouldn't be determining what these principles, Michael's cracking up over here. Yeah. <laughs> you would have hopped all over that one. I am just saying like, uh, with, the yeah. with, with that, that piece being said, we, we should probably have some kind of objective standard before we start <clears throat> dating someone, before we start, you know, again, taking someone on a date, those kinds of things. You're talking about <coughs> principles. Uh, yeah. And I'm not I'm not prohibiting any form of intimacy whatsoever uh, with a with a spouse. But I think when they hear you say intimacy, uh, they go straight to sex. And if, hey, there's no actual rule in <laughs> in guarding us here, um, then then all is good and love and war. So uh, help help us fill in the blanks there. Yeah, don't have sexual intercourse unless you're married. <laughs> oh, and I <laughs> but, like that. That's a good one. <laughs> that's that's a pretty definite. Uh, or, and if you do, then you need to repent and be, and you can be restored and all that kind of stuff. But sure, sure. But but I'm when I talk about intimacy, I talk about holding hands too. I mean, sure. Once you hold hands, when 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 De Young says treat your wife as a sister i'm not kissing my sister on the lips you know oh yeah right there with you (laughs) and if but i'm i'm kissing a a serious girlfriend on the lips and and but um yeah so um there are all kinds of pitfalls in life i mean again some people prefer the um what I would consider to be a legalistic approach, which is I'm not supposed to get drunk. Therefore, I'm not going to even have a glass of wine or I I don't want to have sex. So I'm not going to dance. I mean, I don't want to be a glutton. So I'm never going to eat food. Yeah, exactly. So the point is, yeah, uh, there are going to be struggles there. You're going to have to, uh, you're going to have to be both mindful, but also talking to your, uh, partner uh, about these things, the more and more intimate you get. But see, I like that is. though, because it, what it says is it says that there is such a thing as sexual immorality, right? Like there is sexual practices yeah. oh, that are yeah. prohibited, yeah. but then within yeah. the confines of that, we're also saying be led by the spirit. Yeah. We're not saying yeah. like, I, you know, here are a bunch of arbitrary rules right. that we've made up, follow these rules and you'll be righteous. Well, yeah. And I want to speak into that too, because, it, you know, when I was in my early 20s and before I got married and, and really um, fighting strongly for sexual purity, I mean, I'm, I still fight strongly for sexual purity. Not um, like he used to, though. <laughs> let's be honest. It, yeah. Okay. So uh, let's be honest. So <laughs> anyway, but I, I just remember there were so many rules that were put on it by people yeah. that... And then one day I was just reading the scripture. I came across Colossians 2.20 where, where it says, all these rules you have, do not taste, do not touch. Mm, right. uh, they have the appearance of wisdom, but they have no value in restraining sensual indulgence. And I kind of did a double take and I was like, wait a minute, no value in restraining sensual yeah. indulgence? And so 
And so I just started to think, like, what really is the rule? And I and I went to Proverbs 7, and I saw uh, there was a man, he says, I saw among the simple or the naive. It's like, he's not wise, he's not foolish, he just has no plan. And he says, I saw a man that went near her house, an adulteress. And uh, so there's the first mistake. And then it was at yeah. twilight, at dark. So he's in the wrong place at the wrong time. And then the woman comes out and says, hey, you know, sleep with me. And... And so I found that anytime I fell into sexual temptation, mm. it was because I was in the wrong place in the wrong time. And and so, mm. but I didn't want to make like, you know, like these official big rules about it. It was just like, just put myself in a winning position. Don't put myself in a losing mm. position. And and I used to be a youth pastor too. And uh, and I would think about these things. How do I wear this? And, you know, of course, the question always comes up, like, how far is too far? And mm. and so I would say, how um, holy is I mean, holy. I, I, I did put standards out there for sure, but I, I think they're biblical standards. Mm. But then I would also yeah. come back with, um, well, First Corinthians six eighteen says, "Flee from sexual immorality." Well, what does that look like for you? <laughs> you know, and so I just try to direct people to the scripture instead of uh, my rule about like your skirt needs to be like no higher than your ankles, right? Like, I mean, yeah. it's just ridiculous. <laughs> so there you go. There's my two cents. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's very helpful. I think that's that's great. Just like a, a hesitancy to codify into our eleventh and twelfth commandments what the precise rules are, but within the bounds, within the bounds of scripture. So, um, yeah, yeah, and I think people do can get carried away with passion to be sure, but I also think. Uh, most people or a lot of people, and I don't want to generalize to everybody, you know, they know when they're going too far. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, and so um, they they need to act on that gut feeling. Um, well, so and yeah. they definitely need to listen to um, to whomever they're growing in intimacy with and 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 never go beyond what the uh, person who has the, you know, the lower threshold wants to go. <laughs> okay, so uh, you made a statement in your book, God Loves Sex. I want to read it to you and maybe have you explain what this means for us, okay? Uh, <laughs> you say, sexual desire doesn't begin to be released on the altar the second after you say, I do. It begins in the womb and grows irregularly and progressively throughout our lifetimes until death. And then you go on to say sexual desire is meant to become more holy and whole the longer we live. You describe those as the two core assertions of your book. And so could you maybe unpack those for us and what you meant by that? Well, I think the first is an acknowledgement of what we've been saying, which is that we are sexual creatures from the very start and that was one of the problems with the purity culture is that it seemed to think you could just turn that off until you got married and then turn it on automatically. And I think the idea of holiness, though, is, you know, um, acting in a way that doesn't transgress boundaries um, or, or standards uh, or which which we which we've been talking about not as you know if you've been dating a year then you can do this you're dating two years you can do this but rather it's as growing authentic and sincere commitment takes place uh, then you can grow in in intimacy as uh, you both decide to you know one of the problems that we haven't named here is the fact that. Um, in biblical times, people got married a lot younger. As a matter of fact, in pre-industrial times, people tended to get married much younger, and puberty took place later. Mm -hmm. um, but with the development of, you know, with the Industrial Revolution, the rise of educational systems, marriage is delayed. So um, there's a lot more sort of pressure for I think I think by the time a lot of people get married, they're already probably beyond their their peak, so to speak. Though as a over sixty eight the, over the hill. So as a as a sixty eight year old though, <laughs> I wanna say that uh, that uh Go ahead and say it. 
Yeah, I mean, you can still enjoy sex as much when you're yeah, 68 amen. as when you're <laughs> as when you're younger. Matter of fact, a lot more because um, you know, with experience comes enjoyment. If, um, if yeah, so I'll just leave it there. No, I don't so get too let, let's let's pick up on that because again, that that's going to be an area that people are going to be. Um, r- looking not only for wisdom in, but like actual clarity. And that was one of those areas that when I was a youth pastor, um, you know, I was always trying to talk myself out of a job. And one of the ways that I was doing that uh, was telling the youth that like, get it, like for those of you who um, um, that have a desire for people, right? To uh, obviously have a desire for people. Um, some people don't have that same kind of urge just to get married right out of high school. But everyone right now, because of culture says, don't get married out of high school, go to college, finish college, do these three things, get a s- solid job, then get married. So you're in your mid to late thirties before you're married, because you've got this career that you have to wait for. Um, my, my advice has been unilaterally to youth students like, Hey, um, I understand that there's this kind of cultural norm and pressure from from both Christians and from secular universities and from culture. Uh, but I'm just telling you that holiness is more important. And if you found a spouse that is righteous and loves the Lord, get married soon. Uh, you know, date short periods of time, get engaged quickly, and get married quickly. Um, those are kinds of the the advices that I I toss out at students, and those are advice pieces that a lot of people think is. Uh, to your point, uh, culture right now thinks that's uh, wild and free kind of advice. Like, that's bad advice, <laughs> youth pastor. Don't tell my kid that. But, you know, you think, like you said, pre-industrial, you're 18, you've got your own farm and three kids, you know. Yeah, and right now yeah. the bar for adulthood is so stinking low um, that we have this, you know, onset. You're, you're almost up to the hill. I mean, you're, you're on the hill and you've just started your family. Um, you don't, I I think as Christians, we, we've got to have a kind of countercultural worldview and saying, Hey, I mean, I was, I get to speak into this on some level because I got married when I was 21. You know, I got, I got married as a virgin, right? Because it worked, it worked worked for me. Uh, go find a godly woman, marry her and don't live in sin. It's, it works. I like it. (laughs) Right. But even in saying that you wouldn't be like, the only reason to get married is that you have a sex drive. Right? No, I would say that you're actually given this drive by God, according to Paul. Like, if you have the desire, right, to get married, then get married. That's what he says. He doesn't right. say, if you have the desire to get married, then just don't and wait till you get your life established. Well, right. Like, it's, hey, you don't have to wait until you have your PhD completed and you've purchased your mansion and yeah. you have your retirement funds set up. And then you're like... You have like six months left of like potential baby having age and then like or maybe nine months. So you can have you know right away. And then and then you have your one baby and then that's it. Like that's really not like the the Psalms do pronounce a blessing upon the the wife of your youth, as do the Proverbs. So uh anyway, I just want to toss Dr. it over. Longman, this is this is your interview. Yeah, so what that, you, that's what, what I want to toss you it. What do think of all of our musings? I wanted to toss it over to you. What do you what do you think Disagree of that kind us. of countercultural, you, you know alternative yeah, ethic? Uh, well, I think I, I wouldn't want to make it kind of a rule that uh, that inc- and I'd want to be careful not to encourage people to get too quickly into a <laughs> marriage that before really getting to know the person. But otherwise, I mean, I got married when I would just turn 20. I mean, so, arranged uh, marriage is all the way. 40. I mean. Yeah, I'm just kidding. As no, dads, I, we believe in arranged marriage. As dads, arranged marriage. As dads, we so for my kids <laughs> for sure. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet bet your daughter does. <laughs> well, that'll but, uh, incentivize 40... her being a good child too, won't it? <laughs> yeah, it's right. a win-win-win. No. <laughs> Keep going. I'm sorry. Yeah. We're, we're, so things are getting out of here. No, no, get no. to know the per. Don't don't go Josh's route and just go like lottery marriage. Yeah. Like actually get to know the person for 17 minutes. Yeah. Don't rush and roulette your marriage <laughs> like I did. Yeah. Yeah. But Josh and I, Josh and I got married young and it, it worked out fabulous for us. And, uh, and, but I, I agree with that, that principle too. I mean, I think it's wonderful to look back and, you know, that Alice and I were married while we were in college. Then I went to seminary, then I did my doctorate and, um, you know, and so you have struggles, you know, financial and others, but but we went through it together as a couple. It was wonderful. So, um, but again, I'm not saying that's 
necessarily for everyone. There's nothing sinful about getting mm-hmm. married later. Right. Well, um, and some people would have loved to have been married a long time ago, and they just it just yeah. And that's the other. That's thing. right. Yeah. That's the other thing. And so, yeah, and they're, they're yeah. yeah. So they're uh, and 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 we do need to um, you know we do need to get back to really honoring singleness too, right? Uh, all, the default is always uh, marriage. And and for that reason, single people are find themselves kind of marginalized often. It, it worked well church. for Paul and Jesus. Yeah, it worked well for Paul and Jesus, for sure. Yeah, yeah that's right. All right. Well, let's. So, we're, we're getting to that point in the show where we've got to we got to wrap things up. I want to toss it over to everyone for closing thoughts. I, I probably just want to say, like on the, on the tail end of that, for those of you who uh, are older that are single, you're not in your teens and twenties, and I'm sitting here saying, "Hey, get married young." I hope you hear it, that I'm not suggesting um, that uh, that that you're in the wrong for not getting married young. I, I all I mean to say is that there are people, young people, who are they have they have a, a heart of passion, and Paul tells them there's something to do with that, and it's called marriage. Uh, so I, I'm only suggesting that you pursue that relationship when that said fire is kindled. And, and you're coming against a culture that says wait till you're 39. To yeah, married, I want so. I want to come against a countercultural yeah. uh, system and say, hey, holiness is more important than stability. Um, yeah. Stability. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, as far as closing thoughts, you know, one thing I might add, actually, add to our conversation i wish we we got to touch on this more uh dr longman was uh first of all and i I know this from having read your books plus you said this is that even though this is a book about love sex romance all that kind of thing you're not saying that it's not about christ also we're just simply saying Mm -hmm. it's about christ in a more typological fashion than an allegorical fashion the whole Old Testament speaks of Christ, and, uh, and the Song of Solomon is no different than that. We just don't want to strip it, no pun intended, of oh its... Sorry, I just had to beat you to it because you were about to say I it. Wasn't. I, thought, yes, I wasn't. I wasn't. No. Okay. Uh, Thornication but, was gold. But truly, really, we don't strip. want to strip it of its, uh, of its original meaning, which is to speak into love and sex. But, but I, I think my, uh, my biggest thing is that... Um, I mean, title of your book, God Does Love Sex. He celebrates it. He created it. This is actually a beautiful thing we shouldn't feel shame over this and and i and i think that um so much of pushing christians toward purity is a shame-based approach instead of a grace-based mm. approach mm. And, and shame shame says sex is dirty and nasty until it's wonderful and beautiful in marriage and, and really a, a more biblical and holy way of looking at it is is sex is is holy and beautiful Yes, holy and beautiful within marriage, and yes, it's sinful outside of marriage. But but it's not this thing to be shaming people over. And uh, and so uh, Solomon uh, is actually a case in point of uh, of somebody who had a very broken sexuality. But mm. but God redeems broken sexuality, and so. Uh, Anyway, I think I said a lot of different things there, but those are some thoughts. Yeah, Doctor Longman, what's that golden thought? That golden thought? That golden nugget that you people <laughs> think walk away thinking about? Well, I'll just pick up on what uh, Michael said and encourage people to read Ephesians 5 and sort of not for the submit respect kind of controversy, but for how uh, Paul is using the analogy of Christ and the church uh, in relationship to a marriage and reflect on how um, reading the Song of Songs with its a statement on intimacy and passion and exclusivity and mutual uh, mutuality might uh, inform our understanding of our relationship with Christ. Amen. That's good. Amen. Excellent. Well, guys, thank you so much for watching this episode of Remnant Radio. If if you would, uh, if you've been encouraged by the content we've made, uh, we just ask that you maybe support the ministry. There's a couple ways that you can do that in the description of the video. You can give there on Patreon or you can uh, give on PayPal as a one-time gift there on Patreon. We have things like the book club uh, that at patreon.com forward slash the Remnant Radio every Saturday at one o'clock uh, Central Standard Time. We are discussing uh, uh, this book. And uh, this week, this Saturday, we're going to be discussing 
discussing uh, the chapter on Jehovah's Witnesses. We're going to read about half of that chapter because it is massive. Uh, so we're going to be reading up into the point where it talks about the New World Translation, and then we'll pick up the second half uh, uh, next week. So if you're interested in that, again, we've only got like 30 people in that feed on Saturdays. It's a really fun uh, way to get to know people who watch Remnant Radio, uh, support each other. We spent time praying for each other uh, last week uh, and look forward to doing that uh, in future weeks. But in addition to that, Michael and I are working on a couple different projects for Patreon. We're doing a Believer's Foundations course. Uh, a bunch of the prophecy uh, videos that we filmed in Houston have been uploaded there to Patreon, uh, so you can hear Michael and Michael prophesy all week. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, just picking on them. Uh, anyway, guys, uh, thank you so much for tuning into this episode. I really appreciate you guys watching, and, and check out tomorrow's episode on theosis with uh, Dr. Jordan Cooper. Uh, he's a Lutheran scholar. Love the guy. He's been on a couple times before. His book is awesome. It's yeah. it's complex, but it's kind of a beautiful uh, Christian tradition that has been kind of lost in Protestantism. That, yeah. And then that Wednesday, I really response enjoy. to Chris Roseborough. And then on Wednesday, we have a response to Chris Roseborough. That's yeah. right. So okay. uh, we'll see you guys next time, and thank you so much for tuning in. Blessings. want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew. And you need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description, and you can use the promo promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classroom. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of REMNANT Radio.